Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. We want to welcome all of you to our time in the Word right now, especially those of you that are watching online as well as each one that is here on this Labor Day weekend. We're so thrilled to have all of you here this morning and to trust that this already has been a real encouragement to your heart. It was great to have the choir back. Wasn't it as wonderful to have the choir back? And uh, I hope, uh, see if we can fill up that choir loft like it used to be. I remember when it was totally full. And uh, there's many of you that are out there that can once again join the choir. And it's just going to be a wonderful time. We have a wonderful choir and orchestra. God's uh, given Liberty so many wonderful musicians and people that love Jesus and a wonderful congregation. And together, uh, we want to always make much of the name of Jesus. When we lift up the name of Jesus, the Bible says, all men will be drawn to him. And so Liberty Bibles is a church where Jesus rules, where he reigns, and where we always want to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I invite you to take your Bibles to this passage, uh, open them up to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to uh, look very closely at verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17, pa- uh, Tim has already read that for us. Uh, please be uh, focused, have your Bibles open to this, uh, check up on me, make sure I'm teaching you exactly what God's Word says. Uh, what I say you would little note nor long remember, but what the Holy Spirit says to you, I hope that you will really take to heart, because this is not my evaluation of the church, this is the Lord of the Lampstands evaluation, and what he has to say to the church is vitally important, especially in our 21st century uh, living. We need to take seriously what the Lord of the Lamb stands has to say. And all too often, I fear uh, that we get into what I call kind of a spiritual coast, and we don't understand how important it is that we really honor Jesus Christ in every dimension of our lives. As I was Coming over this morning, I was praying that very simple prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is a prayer that I try to pray almost every day. And yeah, we all mess up, but we always want to have a focus that is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we dig into this passage Uh, You follow along in your Bibles, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to God's truth this morning. Father, we love you. Speak now loud and clear to us in Jesus' name. Amen. A little compromise here and there may not seem like a big deal, but it can lead to big trouble. Oftentimes we think that if we just fudge just a little bit in our faith and we just, we just uh, uh, kind of go along with what everyone else is doing, that it really doesn't matter. Uh, and yet a little bit of a compromise here will lead you to a 
greater compromise in the future. It's interesting that there was a large building in one of our major cities. It had just been constructed. It was basically new construction, but the building manager noticed that after three or four years, there was a huge crack that appeared on the 42nd floor. And so he called the architect to come and examine what was the problem with that uh, huge crack on the, the 42nd floor. And so he planned to meet the architect and, and uh, he got up to the 42nd floor and the architect wasn't there. And he wondered where he was. He finally found the architect down in the sixth floor basement of this huge building. And he said, well, what in the world are you doing down here? He said, we have a huge crack up on the 42nd floor. Well, said the architect, the problem is not on the 42nd floor. It's down here in the sixth floor basement. And what had happened is there had been a, one of the workers there, one of the custodians had been wanting to build his garage and uh, he didn't have enough money to do so. So while the building was being constructed, when everyone was gone and the place was empty, he'd go down to that sixth floor basement and he'd chisel out a brick so he could take it to build his garage. This individual had compromised that entire building. The whole building now was compromised because brick by brick, things had been taken from the very foundation of that large building, and no one knew it until that big crack appeared on the 42nd floor. That individual who thought he could get by with it created a major problem for that, all those that were living there. And all around us, my friends, there are people who have serious cracks in the 42nd floor of their lives. Life is unfair, pressures are overwhelming, marriages are breaking up, temptations are irresistible, and the building blocks of people's lives are being taken away. Compromise is doing its work in many of our hearts. Now that word compromise is an interesting word. It means to fudge to get by or to be deceptive. And the church that we want to look at this morning seems to be, from the outside, a, a fairly good church. And yet, as we dig into the passage, we discover that it is a compromising church. It flirts with evil and tolerates sin, which is wrong. Now, compromise often leads to demise, eventually to total collapse. And as our Lord continues his evaluation of these seven churches of Asia, he has some rather strong words to say to the church at Pergamum that compromises its convictions on the altar of expediency. You and I are living in a world of instant gratification. We have to get everything and we need it now. And we want to satisfy many times the baser attitudes and appetites of the heart. And this was the problem at Pergamum. Compromise is always a live option. Never forget this. It's always a live option. And one of Satan's favorite weapons against individual Christians and the church is to get us to fudge just a little bit with the idea it's not going to hurt very much. No one's going to know. It's okay to just play uh, with, the, with the enemy a little bit. It's okay just to, to, to maybe just... Just, just allow the deceptiveness of the enemy to get the best of us. Now, I want you to think about compromise for just a moment. Compromise, 
never occurs quickly. It's not something a person decides to do. Today, I'm going to compromise. <laughs> it's not what happens. It happens almost quietly and imperceptibly. We don't even realize many times it's happening until we see the results of our compromise. Compromise never occurs quickly. Number two, it <clears throat> always lowers the original standard. When we compromise, we're not looking for the highest good. We're settling for how we can get by with something that is not the very best. Compromise always chooses the way of least resistance. Somebody has put it this way, quote, when the church begins to compromise with the world, she ceases to challenge the world, for both are, this, are on the same level. And in compromising, the church not only becomes like the world, it also becomes part of the world itself. And so compromise always lowers the standard. It does not raise the standard. And God calls us not to live substandard lives as his people. He calls us to be a cut above uh, those uh, around us. Not that we feel that we are greater, uh, have greater value than others, but we set a standard for holiness and righteousness that is a cut above those who have not been touched by the grace of God. Number three, compromise is seldom offensive. Uh, oftentimes, we're not even aware that it's happening. Uh, when we compromise, we really don't offend anybody. I mean, we just kind of go along with the flow. I mean, any, any dead fish can float down the river. It takes a live fish to go against the current and, and swim upstream. But compromise is, is something that, that, that occurs and Many times, again, as I've said already, we don't even realize it until we experience the results. And then number four, compromise is the first step toward complete disobedience to what we know is God's will and purpose for our lives. John MacArthur has written an interesting book entitled The Truth War, and he puts things in perspective when he says, quote, when it comes to biblical issues, moral principles, theological truth, divine revelation, and other spiritual absolutes, compromise is never appropriate. Now, last Sunday we looked at the church at Smyrna. And the church suffers greatly because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. They are known as the suffering church. And many in their congregation are martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but they remain true to the gospel no matter what. Prison and Impending death cannot stop those Christians in Smyrna from being completely loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they counted it a privilege to suffer for Jesus because they recognized that he suffered for them and he bore the punishment that they deserved and they are Christ followers because of what he accomplished at the cross, making salvation possible. This morning we want to observe the third church in this cluster of seven, which is the church of Pergamum, and unlike the uncompromising church in Smyrna, the church at Pergamum is a compromising church. While the Lord of the Lampstands has no condemnation for the church at Smyrna, he has some very sharp words to say to the church here at Pergamum, who tolerates worldliness, immorality, and false teaching within its ranks. Now, geographically, Pergamum is located some 55 miles north of Smyrna. 
It is the capital of the province and very prominent culturally. One of the city's greatest treasures is a building housing more than 200 volumes in a library. Pergamum and paganism are synonymous. They go together. It's very interesting that one commentator describes the city as a strong city of paganism. Another commentator describes Pergamum as hell's headquarters. One ancient writer observes that Pergamum is given to idolatry more than any other place in all of Asia. It's well known for its sacred groves and temples that were devoted to idol worship. Moreover, emperor worship is widely practiced in Pergamum and the great temple to the emperor Augustus is located there. Those who refuse to worship the emperor, namely those who are Christ's followers, are mocked and scorned, ridiculed, and oftentimes persecuted. Moreover, an immense altar to Zeus, the savior god, is perched on the steep hill that rises above the plain which surrounds the Acropolis in Pergamum. Ascepolis, the god of health, symbolized by a serpent, is also the object of worship along with the great images of Dionysus and Athenia. Pergamum is a city that is saturated with idolatry, immorality, and corruption. And yet, in spite of all this, there is still a remnant. There is a struggling voice for truth, even though they live in a city that is permeated by evil. Now let's take a look at this church located in the center of paganism and see what the Lord of the Lampstands thinks about it. The biggest problem facing Pergamum is the greatest problem that faces the 21st century church, and that is compromise with the world, allowing the world to set its standards and not standing tall and confident in the gospel of Christ. Now there are three stages of our Lord's evaluation of this church. First of all, we see he addresses the church. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's very interesting to me that before the Lord of the Lampstands assesses the church, he reminds the church of his credentials. That this is not just an ordinary consultant that is consulting the church. This is the son of the living God. This is the Lord of the Lampstands. He's reminded the church in Ephesus that he gives authority and the pastors serve the church under the authority of Christ. He also reminds us that as a consultant, he walks among the church. He knows everything about the church. He knows the in, inside scoop. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything that goes on. He walks among the church. And remember in Smyrna, he reminds the people that he is the one who, was, who died and was resurrected. This is the resurrected Lord speaking to the church. And now you come to chapter 3, and he identifies himself, notice in verse 12, to him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This speaks of the fact that the one who is speaking speaks forth words of truth. Truth always comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting that if you 
just flip over for just a second to Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 12. What does it say about the Word of God, this Word that proceeds from the very mouth of him who has this two-edged sword? He speaks truth. Notice, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This Lord of the lampstands, he is speaking forth truth. He is not opinionating at this point. He is not making suggestions at this point. He is speaking the word of God. God's word is always a word of truth. Now, notice what he says. He says, I know where you live. And he says, you live where Satan dwells. Satan does everything he possibly can to disrupt and to destroy that which God seeks to build. And in verse 13, he says, where Satan lives. The reason the world is against the body of Christ, the reason the world is against those of us who identify with Christ is because the world is the dwelling place of Satan. The Bible says that Satan is the prince and the power of the air who masquerades himself as an angel of light. Paul describes Satan in Ephesians 2.2 as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And the gross idolatry and immorality that characterizes Pergamum is an indication that it is a city under the control of Satan. And when we take a look at our world today, our world is under the dominion of Satan. He is the one who is doing everything he can to distract us from the main thing, and that is to always lift up Jesus Christ as first and foremost. Jesus must always be king. The enemy does everything he possibly can to distract us away from our main assignment, and that is to live lives devoted to King Jesus. We live in Satan's domain. The permissiveness, the vice, the blurred values, the immorality that is becoming more and more prevalent through the internet, cable TV, and its so-called adult entertainment, and the mobile technology we hold in our hands is something that impacts every single one of us today. Don't be so sure of yourself that you can stand up to that kind of stuff. The enemy knows our weak spot. He never attacks us where we're strong. He always attacks us at our place of vulnerability. And Satan knows every single one of us, and he knows our Achilles heel. He knows how to get into us. That's why we need to be filling our minds every single day with God's Word, the Word of Truth, so that we can fight off the attacks of the enemy. That's how Jesus did it. When Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus met every temptation with a verse of Scripture. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He quotes from the Old Testament. So many of us, we have gotten so accustomed, we have so accommodated to the world that we don't even realize it when we're kind of going along with the flow. 
We just think that's kind of the new norm. Jesus calls out this church because even though some are, are being true to Jesus, there are others that have allowed the world to squeeze them into its mold. It's interesting, he says, there are some in verse 13 that hold fast to his name. There are some that, that there is a remnant that's holding fast. But he's calling out the remnant because they haven't called out those that are doing evil in the church. You see, this is part of the problem. We tolerate sin in the body. And this is what happens, is that there, is a, there are a few, there are a few that continue remaining true to the Word of God and true to Him at all costs, but there are others that are willing to compromise, and we just let it happen. That, that's the problem at Pergamum. And so he talks about Pergamum as a place where Satan resides. Pergamum, some in the church remain true to his name. And he goes on to say that some refuse even to renounce their faith. You did not renounce your faith in me, verse 13. I mean, here are believers. Here is a church that, that, that can have an incredible impact, but they have divided loyalties. There are some that are going along the way of the world, and then there's some that are really hanging on to the truth of the gospel. In fact, one of their members, Antipas, even dies because he is unwilling to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. He refuses to, to attribute lordship to a mere mortal. He refuses to back down on his commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He does not affirm Caesar is Lord, and he dies for his faith. And friends, let me tell you, <laughs> It's getting to the point here where we're going to have to take that kind of a stand. It may not be in the far too distant future. We are living in a world today where Christianity, our religious liberties are being attacked. Many of us don't even realize it. We just kind of go along. That's been the problem at Pergamum. They just kind of went along with it. Now, there were some that were alert. But the problem was the some that were alert didn't call out the others that were following the ways of the world. And as we study the life of this particular church, would to God that we had that same kind of resolve that that remnant had, even though living in a pagan environment, they were going to hold fast to the truth of the Word of God no matter what. Now, number two, he accuses the church. And he says in verse 14, notice, <clears throat> he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught that Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, again, from an outside point of view, people would drive by the church at Pergamum is a pretty good-sized church. They say, hey, man, that's, that's a great church. Everything must be going well there. In fact, there was a remnant. There was part of that church that was really healthy spiritually. Though they had been tested severely to compromise their faith, there was this remnant there that was absolutely true to Jesus Christ. 
But the Lord raises some serious objections about what's going on in the church. In fact, he says they become tolerant of that which the Lord of the lampstands hates. They've compromised and allowed those in their church to go unchecked who have compromised the gospel. Now, notice what he says. First of all, he says Pergamum tolerates the teaching of Balaam. You have people there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, that word hold is the very same Greek word that is translated remain true, and it speaks of hanging on tenaciously. There are those that are hanging on tenaciously to the truth of the gospel, and there are also some in that church that are holding on tenaciously to the teaching of Balaam. Now, we don't have time to dig into this, but jot down these references, Numbers chapters 22 to 27. This is where it's all described about Balaam. You'll remember that Balak, the king of Moab, had summoned Balaam to come and curse the tribes of Israel who were about to cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land. But every time Balaam opens his mouth, instead of cursing Israel, he blesses Israel. And since he's unable to curse Israel, and because he's greedy for the reward that Balak promised him, if he's successful, Balaam devises another scheme to bring defeat to Israel. And he advises Balak to have Moabite girls seduce Israelite men by inviting them to take part in idolatrous and immoral feasts because he knows that such action will arouse the anger of God and he will punish the Israelites. Now notice the two chief sins of those who hold to the teaching of Balaam are idolatry, look at this, and Immorality. Notice, to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing acts of immorality. So the first issue is they are tolerating those who continue to honor idols. Now, remember, they live in a city that encourages idol worship. Idol worship was practiced openly. And there were some in the church who claimed to be Christ followers, and yet they continued to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols in direct uh, disobedience to the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So, So they know what the Scripture is. It's not that they are ignorant. They know what the Scripture is, but they continue to do what they know is wrong and they continue to to go along with the culture. And we're seeing this same kind of syncretistic uh, teaching from those today in the emergent church movement. Now let me just talk to you a little bit about this. There are those in that movement that say you can be a Christ follower and still hang on to Buddhism, Mohammedanism, and other false religions. Brian McLaren, one of the primary uh, people of, of the emergent church in his book, The Generous Orthodoxy, writes this, and I quote, I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. It may be advisable in many, 
not all circumstances, to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist, Hindu, and Jewish contexts. See, this is how it seeps into the church. It's very interesting how this happens. Where we can just continue to, to say we're Christ followers, but we, we don't reject that which is false. And that leads to idolatry, incredible idolatry. The second sin Pergamum tolerates is immorality. They continue to visit the wicked shrines and the temples, which often included outright acts of immorality as part of their worship. And instead of breaking with the old way of living, they hang on to it and justify this behavior as being honorable. They allow the culture to dictate their Christian behavior. So Pergamum tolerates the teaching of Balaam, and it also tolerates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Look at this in verse 15. You also have some who hold, that is, hold on tenaciously to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, evidently, the teaching of Balaam was also a key doctrinal issue with the Nicolaitans a sect of false teachers who are active both in Ephesus and in Pergamum. Now, it's very interesting that in Ephesus, the Lord of the Lampstands commends the Ephesian church that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. They hate those works. But in Pergamum, they tolerate it. They put up with it. Even though they know it is evil and wrong, they continue to tolerate what they know is not of God. Ephesus exercises great spiritual discernment. Pergamum does not. These false teachers teach that liberty with Christ has freed them to sin. Given them liberty to sin. Since we're under grace rather than the law, then sin all you like. God's grace is greater than our sin. And the Nicolaitans turned the liberty of the gospel into living a life of sin. They teach that you can sin with your body and it's okay with your soul. The Nicolaitans teach that you can engage in all kinds of sexual sin and it's perfectly okay. They promote a philosophy of life that a little idolatry here and a little immorality there can't possibly hurt us. So just keep on indulging in sin. It really doesn't matter. But it does. <laughs> it does. And the Lord of the lampstands calls out this church <clears throat> because they know what's going on, but they don't do anything about it. They continue to let those in their midst adhere to the teaching of Balaam and also the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitan teaching is totally anti-biblical. You see, freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. And they are accused of tolerating what they know is wrong. Now, there's a segment in that church that doesn't go along with that. They are true to Jesus Christ. They are true to the gospel. 
But the Lord of the lampstands calls them out because of their silence. They knew error existed, but they didn't do anything about it. Now the same thing happens in evangelical churches today. We allow the culture to set our behavior patterns. It's amazing. In fact, I just finished up an article from Christianity Today about the problem of cohabitation in the church today. The problem is, is rampant almost across the board. In fact, most Christian young people that have grown up in the church don't see anything wrong with premarital sex. They haven't. They, they, that part of the scripture, moral purity does not exist for them. They've learned all about the gospel. They've learned everything, but don't talk to me about this. I've had young people, I've had people in their 60s stomp out of my office because I will not marry them because they refuse to continue to, they want to keep on cohabitating. And I'm not, I'm not going to marry them until they separate for a period of time. But let me tell you, doesn't win any popularity contests, that's for sure. In fact, the people that have been most critical have been church people. What's the matter with you, Pastor? Don't you have any compassion for these folks? Exactly what goes on. This is the kind of thing that happens. It just somehow becomes acceptable. And today there's a whole movement of churches that have sacrificed moral integrity to just close their eyes to outright sin. Some churches, the marriage ceremony no longer includes the phrase, till death do us part. It's been replaced by the phrase, until we no longer love each other. That's, that's how it's going today. In fact, most couples enter marriage with the idea that if it doesn't work, we can always trade in for a new model. I mean, that, that, that's, this is what is being said in our seminar or in our colleges, universities. It's unbelievable. Just, you know, if it doesn't work, you can always, you know, try something a little bit different. They don't go into marriage today with a keen sense of commitment to a lifetime of, of honoring each other until death do them part. There are some evangelical pastors today that would even encourage uh, couples that are having marital problems to go out and have an affair so you can really appreciate your wife. No, no, this is... The immorality today that goes on under the guise of Christianity is appalling to God. Recently, a mainline denomination considered a committee report that urged responsible, quote, responsible teenage sex and counseled clergy to cease their painful assumption that singles should remain chaste. The popular New Age movement teaches that there is no God to sin against. And since good is evil and evil is good, we can do nothing bad. They say that monogamy inhibits, quote, deep interpersonal relationships with many persons 
and that no form of sexual activity violates another person's sanctity. We will choose to have sex with one another if it enhances our experiences of unification with all that is, unquote. And to that I say, baloney. But this is what is happening in so-called Christian America. You, you see, is, there any, is there any wonder why the world looks at us and says, man, you guys, you don't have your act together. This was the problem at Pergamum, and this is what is keeping America church in a plateaued, declining condition. The church at Pergamum is called out for idolatry and immorality. Christ advises the church, number three. See in verse 16, he says, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Christ is deeply concerned about the church that compromises its standards. By letting the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans go unchecked, they are placing their seal of approval. Silence is not golden. It is the seal that they approve. And Christ says to the church, very strong language, he says, you need to repent. To change directions. Repentance is not only confessing and acknowledging that we have done wrong, it's doing a 180-degree turn and going in a different direction. Now, again, you don't hear a lot about repentance in today's church. You take a look at what's on the Internet. How, how, how many churches are talking about repentance? Very few. Repentance. The church is called to repentance. And the Lord of the Lampstands is, is making this very, very clear. He says, I want you to forsake your sin and I want you to embrace Jesus Christ with all your heart. It's not God's plan that truth would ever be conquered by evil. And when error runs unchecked in the church, it means that those who identify with the truth must repent. If we have, as Christ followers, allowed sin. You see, one of the other problems in the church, very few churches practice any kind of church discipline today. It, it's sad. It is absolutely sad what we tolerate in the church. But we don't want to offend anybody. Oh my. But you know what we're doing? We're offending the living God. This, this is what breaks his heart. He laid down his life for the church. He loves the church incredibly. But when we compromise and tolerate that which we know is wrong, judgment is coming. And so the Lord of the Lamp stands, he says to this compromising church that I wield a sword of truth. He says... Repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's what he was talking about in verse 12. It is a word of truth. He wields a sword of truth from his mouth. 
The way to overcome evil is to heed the truth. John Stott puts it this way. He says, force of arms cannot conquer ideas. Only truth can defeat error. And so he says, unless you repent, the sword of truth is going to be exercised and it will become a sword of, notice, judgment. I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. It's very interesting, if you go back in the Old Testament, Balaam, this false prophet, is himself killed by a sword in Numbers 31.8. You see, those who propagate this kind of falsehood, immorality, idolatry in the church and think they get away with it when they stand before Almighty God, the judgment will take place. They think they can get by with it. They think they can hang on to the world and hang on to Jesus at the same time. Eventually, the sword of judgment will come. Those that propagate devilish teaching of idolatry and immorality are going to face the same judgment unless they too repent. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. He rewards the overcomer. I love this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. And the hidden manna refers to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6 and verse 35? I myself am the bread of life. He goes on in verse 24. He says, you need to be concerned about the... the, the not about the bread that perishes, but about the bread that leads to eternal life. And for those that overcome, here is the promise of eternal life. They will receive hidden manna. They can be assured of their place in God's heaven. And then they will also, notice, receive a white stone symbolic of the righteousness of Christ, which probably is a brilliant diamond, notice, with a new name inscribed upon it. And that new name in Revelation 3 and verse 12 is Christ's name. Notice chapter 3 and verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven and my own new name. And here, notice, this new name that is given to those who overcome, no one knows it except the one who receives it. Do you realize that if you are true and faithful to Jesus Christ, when you stand before him, he's going to give you a new name. (laughs) He's going to give you a brand new name. No one else will have that name. There won't be, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th Johns. There won't be a bunch of Kevins. There won't be a bunch of, I mean, every name that is given will be a unique name that only is given by the Son of God. Remember that old, that old, old hymn. Most of you, man, I, you probably don't even remember this, but 
It's a fabulous song. There's a new name written down in glory. Remember that song? And it's... And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. You see, see, a new name. Boy, I'm so glad uh, John can be exchanged. (laughs) Isn't it going to be a wonderful day? We receive hidden manna and a brand new name because we have overcome in the strength of Jesus Christ. Man, I don't know about you. I don't want to be a compromiser. I want to be a conqueror. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Oh God, help us to remain true to you in a world that has lost its soul. Oh God, help us to live for you with all of our hearts. In the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.